Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and today we are joined by Sarah Ganya, the author of the new book, Nature at Your Door, connecting with wild and green in the urban and suburban landscape. Sarah Ganja is an associate professor of landscape ecology at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Based on Sarah's 15 years of research and teaching of urban ecology, Nature at Your Door adds a fresh perspective to nature writing. And it also calls for those who want to make the places where they live greener, healthier, and more diverse to action. Sarah brings the message of how people and nature are connected, even in our urban and suburban landscape, right to our door. Sarah joins me from her home in North Carolina. Sarah, welcome to Nature Revisited, and thank you for joining me. Your new book, Nature at Your Door, focuses on where our relationship with nature is really most important, where we live, and where more and more of us are choosing to live, in an urban landscape. So let's start there. You were brought up in Montreal, Canada, a large city. What are some of the early memories of nature in Montreal? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Stefan, for having me on your podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. So it's a great pleasure to be here. So early memories of nature in Montreal. I was lucky enough to have a dad who took me to the Morgan Arboretum, so a nature preserve near my house. And I lived in kind of a suburban part of the island of Montreal near the western edge. We would go to this quarry pond in the Morgan Arboretum, so forested nature preserve, and we would hunt for tadpoles and salamanders and frogs. And it was the first time that I had ever seen any of these creatures. I think I started doing this probably when I was six or seven years old, and we went many times in succession. I was just blown away, so blown away by these extraordinary creatures that could swim in the water but had legs and looked so strange to the point where I even brought some home and tried to keep them in aquariums at home, which didn't work out so well. I was especially blown away that these creatures existed. I had these extraordinary, almost alien-like creatures living out their lives next to me. So that really sparked a love of nature and urban and suburban nature in particular. When did you first become aware of the urban ecosystem? And is that why you became an ecologist? First, I'd like to just back up a little bit and define an urban ecosystem, because that might not be a term that a lot of people are familiar with. A lot of us are familiar with a forest ecosystem that includes all the living and non-living elements in a forested area. Trees are sucking up nutrients from the soil, making leaves, 
herbivores are eating those leaves, predators are eating the herbivores, and then everything is dying and decomposing and turning back into nutrients in the soil. So an urban ecosystem is all of those things, all of those elements, plus humans interacting in similar ways, plus new ways in an urban or suburban place. We play a large role in those interactions because we're kind of the dominant species. So in terms of thinking about becoming aware of an urban ecosystem, I did a lot of volunteering between my undergrad and my graduate work in Ottawa. And I became involved with a group who is fighting development near a provincially significant wetland. This wetland was filled with frogs and toads and salamanders and all kinds of beautiful plants. There were going to be houses right next to that. So I started thinking about research questions, like what would happen after the development to those frogs and toads? Would they persist? Would they slowly decline? Those interactions between people other species really got me thinking about urban ecology and urban ecosystems. And what I was really most fascinated with were these complexities and tensions between places where people and other species were going to coexist. The fact that those tensions are so in your face, right outside your door. So that's when I started thinking about the bigger picture of an urban ecosystem. So what was the inspiration behind this book? nature at your door? As I was writing it, I kind of realized that it grew out of my urban ecology course that I teach at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And that course goes over the different parts of the urban ecosystem and how different elements are connected. And it grew out of my desire as a scientist and a teacher to really share my passion about urban nature with people and try to increase the extent to which they're connected to nature where they live. And then the second really important part, the book is really filled with lots of recommendations for action that readers can take to build their relationship with nature and to minimize negative impacts that, that humans have on nature where we live. And this is really critical for us to start doing. In terms of the book, I really would love it be an inspiration for people to get outside, especially right where they live, and to interact with nature in some way, because that will lead to them probably taking some positive steps to help it, and it needs a lot of help right now. So some people living in cities might ask you, why is it so important for the urban dweller to have a relationship with nature? That is a great question. And on the face of it, it seems like the answer would be, or a lot of people think like there is no nature in cities. I live in a city, I go about my daily life. There isn't much around me. What kind of impact could I be having on nature and how could it impact me? First of all, I'll say, and this is part of the book that I really loved working on, is that cities are full of nature. I'm finding that the more I learn about cities, the more I talk to people, the more that I've kind of gone out around my neighborhood and other places, the more species that I find. And it's just incredible. 
A recent study from nearly 150 cities across the globe found that cities, those cities, uh, were home to a fifth of all bird species on the planet. There are three scientists in Australia who found a thousand species in their yard alone over a year and a half. Our staff agency here in Mecklenburg County have counted 899 moth species in the county. And that's a county with a million people. So it's certainly not rural, right? It's one of the most urban counties in the country. Nature is right there outside your door, even if you might think it's not. And it actually doesn't take a long time to look for it either. So there is increasing evidence that suggests that the more people interact with nature, the more that you get to know nature, and the easiest way to do that is right outside your door, then the more you are connected with it, the more you care about it, and the more likely you are to take actions to help it. So there, there is a line of research that supports each of those links. And that's really important because I think a lot of us spend a lot of time indoors and we're kind of getting disconnected from nature, which is a significant problem if we want to help the planet hopefully recover or we want to help mitigate the impacts of climate change and biodiversity loss. And I think that everyone derives some kind of peace and satisfaction and happiness from some aspect of nature, whether it's a tree or just being able to see the sky or maybe stars, which is a little more difficult in urban and suburban places, or a flower or something like that. So those are the reasons that I think urban and suburban dwellers in particular, which are the majority of Americans, should connect with nature right outside their door. Not only do you address the issue as, as to why we should have a relationship with nature in cities, but you show people in so many ways on how that can be done. In fact, so much that in the introduction, you explain how to use this book. Can you elaborate on that and, and just give an idea of how someone might go about it? I took the time to include how to use this book in the introduction because I want my book to be read, but more importantly, like you suggested, used. So I've packed the book with lots of science and lots of evidence, and I would love for someone to read it from start to finish. But if you don't want to do that and you're only interested in a particular topic, then you can flip to those particular chapters. So I've tried to take the viewpoint of the reader or the urban or suburban dweller, and I've addressed how you impact nature and how it impacts you in each of the spaces where you might encounter it where you live. So each chapter is dedicated to a space. First one is your yard, then your street, then your park, your greenway, your neighborhood, and finally, your city. And in each of those, I've split the chapter in two halves. So explaining how you impact nature in the first half, and then how it impacts you in that particular space in the second half. So I'm suggesting to the reader right at the beginning, read the whole book if you like. If you're only interested in a particular space, like your yard, just read that chapter. If you're only interested in one of the two 
relationships, so say how nature impacts you in your yard, then just read that chapter half, or you can just flip through and take a look at the recommendations. Relatively easy things that you can do to build your relationship with nature around your home and in your neighborhood and in your city. So what I would like to do next is focus on a few of those chapters and just give a summary or an idea of what what they may contain. And we can start with the first one, your yard. Your yard is actually just as or more important to bird diversity where you live, so the number of different types of species, than the surrounding green space. So parks, nature preserves, greenways, those types of things. So if you think about it, your yard is actually, in urban and suburban places, the number one habitat for birds. And that means that everything you do in your yard has a major impact on the health of bird populations in your city or your urban area or or suburban place. In most cities, yards represent a very large proportion of the green space that's available to species in general. There's lots of evidence, particularly for birds, because they're really well studied, that show that even a small change in the greenness of a yard or the resources available to birds in a yard can make a big difference to the species that'll call your yard home. The other interesting thing is that all of the research that supports this shows that it's not just common species that are going to come and visit your yard, but it's also forest-dependent species, so species that thrive in large trees and really vegetated areas, threatened species, rare species. So those species will come to urban and suburban places if they can find the habitat that they like, and they do. They've been recorded, including provincially and federally rare species in yards. And I've got, I think, five easy steps that you can take to make your yard more bird friendly. And then the reverse is how nature impacts you in your yard. And in that of the chapter, I go over the extinction of experience. You know, the less we go outside, the less we know nature and how that impoverishes us and diminishes our ability to act on nature's behalf. So in that part of the chapter, I go over some examples, particularly with respect to children, where children who are exposed to bird feeding, for example, come away with a much greater love and connection to nature and desire to continue bird watching and bird feeding. I've come up with a list of 10 fun things that you can do with your kids in your yard to get them introduced to nature. Yeah, so that's your yard. So let's step outside the yard and go to the street. This is an interesting part, I think, of where people live that has these really kind of meaningful interactions between people and nature, but people almost never think of them. One is something we don't like to see, we don't really like to talk about. So the first way that you impact nature on your street is by roadkill. So inadvertently hitting animals. This is kind of an uncomfortable subject. No one wants this to happen, right? But I I want people to be aware 
that this is actually a pretty big problem and it impacts all kinds of species. It's not just your raccoon and your gray squirrel that we often see as roadkill on the side of the road, but there are innumerable species that are hit by vehicles, bobcats, badgers, foxes, all kinds of amphibians and reptiles, painted turtles, also birds, owls are particularly vulnerable to roadkill, and then also insects. So beetles, eastern monarch butterflies, grasshoppers, mayflies, mantises, earwigs, all kinds of stuff being hit by vehicles on roads. This is a huge problem. So the mortality or death of all these individuals actually has been shown to lead to reduced population sizes, so fewer of these animals where they live. And in terms of insects, it's kind of something, again, we don't really think of insects, certainly, as being roadkill. Roadkill is actually one of the contributors to what is being called the insect apocalypse, this large loss of insects globally, both in terms of their number and the types of species that we have. And so roadkill is actually a significant problem. So there are things that you can do to reduce roadkill. And then in the other half of the chapter, the other thing that is actually really beautiful about a lot of streets in America are our street trees. A lot of cities are investing in planting street trees, and these actually contribute significantly to our quality of life in cities and suburbs. Again, it's kind of a part of nature that might be overlooked. You might not take time to look at your street trees. You might not think about them that much, but the services that they provide to us in terms of pollutants they absorb, the stormwater runoff they might absorb, the shade that they provide. So that's on the order of significant urban infrastructure that we actually need for our quality of life to create cities where people and nature can thrive. I also cover how street trees, in addition to absorbing pollutants and you know helping to cool your home, there is increasing number of studies that show that street trees actually are associated with less violent crime, with more biking and walking. So they benefit you in a variety of different ways. And I end that chapter with some recommendations for taking care of your street tree. So if you put a lot of streets together, you have a neighborhood. So talk about the chapter on your neighborhood. So this one is where I address coyotes. I think the coyote is probably the species most people associate with urban nature, I would think. So the first half of the chapter talks about how the housing density the density of where you live, of your neighborhood, plays a big role in the types of species that you live amongst in your bigger neighborhood. Before I get into coyotes, I talk about birds. So there's lots of research on birds in urban and suburban places. And that research has coalesced to two surprising results. If you live in a suburban place, which a ton of Americans do, 
you are living with the most birds out of anywhere in your whole region. So including the undeveloped areas, the rural areas, the very urban areas. You've got the most birds surrounding you out of anywhere. And then the other thing is you've got almost as many species in your neighborhood as exist in rural and undeveloped areas in your region. So where you're living in your neighborhood, in terms of birds, you're in a really bird diverse, biodiverse neighborhood. And then the second part of that, the other species that really like these suburban neighborhoods where you've got lower density housing with yards interspersed with green areas are coyotes. Coyotes tend to do really well in more suburban density neighborhoods. They're finding lots of places to hide and sleep, lots of things to eat like fruit and rabbits and hares and small rodents. In all likelihood, one, wherever you live in an urban or suburban place, you probably have a coyote. Two, those coyotes are doing really well if you're in a suburban place. And three, those coyotes are doing everything they possibly can to stay away from you and keep hidden as much as possible. So I talk a lot about how to safely live with coyotes. There's lots of information out there and there's some easy things that you can do to minimize the likelihood that you'll have a coyote in your yard that's causing problems. The second half of the chapter on your neighborhood talks about green stormwater infrastructure. So that's how we're impacting nature neighborhood-wide. What neighborhoods are experiencing recently is a lot of urban flooding associated with changes to precipitation in our climate, a lot of construction and kind of infill development going on in our neighborhoods. And that is significantly deteriorating local streams, so the quality of our aquatic environments, because a lot of runoff from neighborhoods, from rain events, um, goes directly into your local stream. So in that part of the chapter, I talk about how green stormwater infrastructure elements like stormwater ponds, uh, rain gardens, bioswales have been shown to significantly reduce the amount of runoff that goes into local streams and also absorb a significant amount of pollution from that runoff, which in urban areas, runoff picks up all kinds of pollutants from buildings, roads, and lawns, including fertilizers. So those green stormwater infrastructure elements really help in improving the quality of our local streams. So if you put enough neighborhoods together, you form a city. Talk about your chapter on your city. What it's showing, the first half, is how you can impact nature in your city. And kind of like your street, this is an area that people might not think of necessarily when you're thinking about nature. So this bigger area, the city or town that you live in. But research that I and others have done has shown that a lot of what goes on in terms of nature protection and preserving green space and thinking about 
where green space would be is under the jurisdiction of our local planning agencies. So they're the ones making decisions about zoning, where houses will be, at what density, where parks will be, and so on. So they have a lot of control in terms of how much nature you're going to live amongst in your city and how much nature your neighbors will live amongst in your city. The number one way, according to these planners, to help preserve nature in your city is to influence local elected officials, so your councillors, your mayor. So the more you're involved with issues related to nature in your city, the more you can get the word out, the more you vote for people who are passionate and interested and dedicated to nature, the more nature you'll live amongst. So I include a lot of suggestions for getting involved in your local government when it comes to nature. I sit on the City of Charlotte Tree Advisory Commission, and I'm able to actually contribute my voice to those issues, which is really critical. Uh, and then in terms of your city, how nature impacts us, I talk about increasing research that kind of is coalesced around the idea that communities of color and low-income communities in city live amongst less public nature, so in parks and along streets. That's for a variety of historical and current reasons. So that impacts all of us because if we've got a significant portion of uh, city residents, our neighbors who are living in neighborhoods with much less nature, then our city as a whole, in my view, is significantly deteriorated or is significantly poorer. We really need to address this disparity in access to nature in cities. And again, I give people some suggestions of how you can do that. Throughout the book, you have placed wonderful sidebars to help connect people, such as iNaturalist, which is a wonderful site. Why are they so important? So I think they're important for the bigger reason that I've mentioned already that, you know, we need to do something to increase the quality of our environment, one, where we live, but also to get better acquainted with nature so we can act to increase the health of nature planet-wide. They're important to get people not just reading, but doing. You can read about something, but there is nothing like going out and experiencing it. So finding those species that you never thought, ants or birds, tree frogs, all kinds of stuff that is probably in your yard and you never even knew was there before you went and looked. Having those actual experiences and bringing that interaction with nature home so that it becomes some part of your lived experience. You know, taking at least one of these recommendations and doing something with it is really a key part of the book. And like I said, I've tried to put as many of those as I can throughout the book. And that's really kind of the heart of the book from the get-go. Is there a way the reader can learn more about you and the work that you are doing? Yeah, so uh, the reader and everyone interested in urban ecology and nature in cities can check out my website. It's www.saragonier.com. 
S-A-R-A-G-A-G-N-E.com. I'm also always on email and would love to hear from readers. So my email address is S-G-A-G-N-E at charlotte.edu. And I'm also on Instagram. And my account is urban underscore nature underscore CLT. And I would love to hear from anyone who has questions or experiences or finds new species where they live. So finally, what do you hope the reader will take with them as they read and use your book? I think I would love the reader to take away with them a bit of wonder at the diversity of nature that surrounds them in places where they never thought it was. Uh, and they had never looked. So I would more than anything love for them to realize as they, you know, leave their house and maybe drive to work or go for a run on their greenway or walk around their neighborhood and think about all the other species that are living amongst you and carrying out their lives, growing leaves, uh, maybe moving from a pond to a grassy area, um, over the summer, flying around, all the other species that are surrounding you that you're not thinking about, not seeing, but are actually there. And that's really, you know, what I got from my early salamander hunting with my dad at the nature preserve down the street is just this, this astounding realization that there are so many other creatures that are, you know, living their lives that are seemingly hidden to our view, but they're there and we just have to look for them. That aspect is what I would love for people to get from the book. The fact that urban and suburban places are so rich with nature. Humans can be just as connected to nature in cities as elsewhere. And then the second thing I'd love for people to get from the book, that it's easy to take action. You can just do one thing. You don't have to do all 75 things that I'm suggesting in the book. But if you do one thing, that's great. It doesn't need to be a lifelong commitment. It doesn't need to take a lot of time. There's pretty easy things you can do to foster your relationship with nature and minimize any negative impact that you might be having on nature around your home and in your neighborhood. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sarah Ganya, and that you get a chance to read her new book, Nature at Your Door, and that you contact her to learn more about the great work she is doing. I hope you will share this episode with friends, family, and colleagues, and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and our website. NordenProductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Buzz and Fly by Tim Buckley. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are Nature Revisited.